0: Thank you. on Lightning Talk last year, and last, last he was seen was walking out the building to go and close some deals. So yeah, I did. A, I'm glad you came back. I am, I am back. I did a parody of Glengarry Glen Ross last year, and basically, my responsibility was to yell at the audience for seven and a half minutes, so I'm going to try not to keep that up here. Um, really quick, uh, before we begin, just a disclaimer of sorts, uh, I am an engineer by training. I am a big fan of scientists, and uh, I hope that all of you really enjoyed lunch. Uh, One of the things that happens to people during lunch uh, is that you eat food, and when you eat food, it releases blood sugar, and blood sugar uh, means that there's a release of insulin, which leads to uptakes in serotonin and melatonin, which means that you get drowsy. Uh, That is a direct quote from science, by the way, Uh, so (laughs) it's absolutely correct. Um, I'm also a big fan of the study of willpower depletion. I don't know if too many of you have heard about this. Uh, It's definitely something worth reading up on, but the general idea behind willpower depletion is that the longer you get away from having slept or rested or eaten, the lower the quality of your decisions over time. And in a way, you kind of almost get dumber as time goes by. And if you look at, uh, this is a study done by Daniel Kahneman uh, at Princeton, there's this period in time immediately after lunch where uh, people sustain the steepest drop-off in their, quality to make, uh, their ability to make high-quality decisions. So all this to say, uh, if I'm speaking up here and you find yourself getting drowsy, or maybe you get this distinct impression that with every minute you listen to me talk, you're getting dumber and dumber. Uh, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is science, okay? Uh, this, is, this is not anything having to do with the talk. Uh, okay, quick, uh, quick show of hands, everybody. Um, who in here would consider themselves to be an engineer or someone with some kind of like technical ability? Like pretty much the conference, right? So, who in here would consider them to be a really world class designer, somebody where design talent is really high? Yeah. Uh, so, that's, that's why I'm here today, because I am one of you. Uh, I am somebody that uh, has done a lot of engineering in my career and very little design and I found myself in a situation where I kind of needed to find a way to make design work for my business in order for it to be successful. Um, Just really quickly on my business, uh, the company's called RJ Metrics. We're a company that's on a mission to inspire and empower data-driven people, Uh, and we do that by building software that helps online businesses get all their data in one spot and then provides tools that sit on top of that centralized data warehouse to conduct analysis and find more valuable customers, et cetera, Uh, and the one thing that we all have in common at the companies that we love data. Uh, Everybody at the business is there because of their passion relating to data. And I know that there are companies of all different sizes in the crowd today, but I think the one common thread among all those companies is that they started out pretty much the same, with one or two or maybe a small group of people that had some passion and a big idea. Uh, And when you're lucky uh, or maybe you're good or maybe a little combination of both and you're in that situation and things start working, there is this unavoidable consequence, which is that you grow. And when you ask the question, what happens when you grow as a company, the answer that I have found time and time again is that everything breaks. Like, nothing will consistently work at each stage of size in your company. Uh, And as we think about all the different things that have broken over the course of building RJ Metrics, uh, this talk, by the way, is gonna be super embarrassing. I'm just kind of laying out all these uh, terrible things that have happened to us. Uh, Communication has broken. We started out with a daily stand-up meeting where everybody stands in a circle, probably looks familiar to everybody. We were on Yammer for a little while. We're using Slack now. We, that's a photo of General Stanley McChrystal, who uh, rolled out a O and i an operations and intelligence call uh, among the U.S. forces in Afghanistan when he took over there. Uh, one of our directors of sales is a big fan of his and has rolled out a daily O&I call for us. We are trying a lot of things to make communication work well. but. As we grow as a team, it just keeps requiring uh, new parameters in order to be successful. Uh, Management style, we started out as a very, very flat organization, took a lot of pride in that, but quickly learned over time that actually it allowed people to be more effective when their ability to contribute and their desire to contribute was on an individual basis. And having people actually take a leadership role, which is a lot about what my talk was last year, uh, was actually something that would drive the business forward. Uh, recruiting definitely uh, was something that broke along the way. Compensation definitely broke. As I, as I lose more and more of my hair, my fear of becoming the pointy-haired boss is just becoming uh, more and more a reality. And I think like this was, this was totally us in the early days of growing the business. Like it was, we were a broke bootstrapped startup and we didn't pay people a lot of money. And as we got to the point where you know, you. when you're a five-person company, you can get away with that. When you're a 50-person company, people start to raise an eyebrow and say, why don't I join the 50-person company down the street that pays twice as much? Um, uh, workflows, uh, office space, and not just running out of room, but just the way you handle noise. Uh, I never knew there were so many, so, so many kinds of noise. There's white noise and brown noise. There's also pink noise and violent noise. Uh, there are all kinds of different ways to deal with suddenly having a sales team that talks all day in a room full of what was traditionally engineers, uh, having to deal with that. But the thing that I want to talk about today with all of you is a company's identity. Does a company's identity actually break over the course of its life? And there's this common concept that I probably hear this the most from venture capitalists. Uh, But I hear from founders as well, which is this idea of the company's DNA and the founder's DNA. And uh, I'll very commonly hear, oh, that company, it's going to be amazing at sales because they've got sales DNA, or they've got product DNA. And to me, I think that this is a very flawed metaphor. Because uh, unless any of us are involved in some kind of terrible nuclear accident or become a superhero of some kind, our personal DNA is not going to mutate over the course of our lifetimes. But I think that in the case of a company, uh, DNA mutations are actually something that does happen and that are necessary over the course of of the life of a business. Uh, And the story that I'm going to tell you today is, it's an an N equals one. It's the story of RJ Metrics and our visual identity over time, but what I'm hoping is that as you hear this, you will be able to think about your own company uh, and some of the things that you've made investments or not made investments in in the course of evolving your own identity, particularly from a visual perspective. this was myself and my co-founder back in 2008 when we started the company in my attic, and there was one common thread about what was in our company DNA in that point in time, and that was frugality. Uh, we had no money, and we were not particularly interested in raising money. Uh, I say that now, if we had wanted to raise money, I don't think we could have, so it was kind of a moot point. Uh, but we had these amazing experiences in the early days where we made, uh, we made investments of our time that were just overwhelmingly disproportionate to the value that we got out, because we weren't valuing it enough. I remember distinctly one argument with my co-founder. We needed a paperclip, a single paperclip, and we had to go and buy some from Staples. And we probably spent 20 minutes debating whether to get the box of 50 paperclips for a dollar or 500 for $2. He was on the side of, okay, we get great economies of scale. Obviously, the marginal cost of a paperclip of 500 is way better. I was saying, but you got to consider cost of capital here. Uh, And you got to understand that the deployment of these paperclips is going to stretch out over so much time. Uh, I won that argument, by the way, and we still have not used 51 paperclips. Um, (laughs) The other thing that... I think we did, that was a huge mistake in the early days around being frugal was when we had our first few employees, Jake, my co-founder and I were not coffee drinkers, but people wanted coffee. And we said, okay, just bring your own coffee. We're not going to supply company coffee. Uh, Just as a tip, and this is a lesson that I have learned in a really big way, if your employees are volunteering to take a drug that makes them work harder, just buy the drug and supply it in the office. Uh, We are way better off with, with coffee. Um, And in the early days, so we started out in my attic in southern New Jersey, and uh, we got to a point where the attic wasn't going to fit us anymore, and uh, we were looking at our options. uh, And this is the Delaware River in the center of this graphic here. Uh, North of the Delaware is the beautiful city of Philadelphia. Uh, South of the Delaware is the city of Camden. Uh, If you are familiar with Camden, uh, there are a lot of great uh, historical landmarks there. There's an awesome. State prison just north of the bridge. There's a a great county lockup right next to the train station, which is great. Uh, And when we went out looking for office space, we didn't see those. What we saw was, hey, 400 bucks a month, and it's got air conditioning. Uh, And we signed up uh, and and moved the company to Camden, which for us was awesome. Uh, And I think Camden's done a lot to invest in its downtown, and for a period in time was good for the business. But it was in line with that frugality in our DNA. And uh, as we will see soon, that quickly had to evolve. So that's what was in our DNA. Then there's this other question what was not in our DNA? Uh, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to speak at uh, TEDx Philly back around 2010. Uh, if you need a little magnification on this, uh, there's a tie that's about going down to my knees. Uh, these pants are like, I think they had sat in my, my dad's closet uh, for a couple of years before having worn them. Uh, just style was not in our company DNA in any really meaningful way. Um, and this was the last website that I had designed uh, prior to starting RJ Metrics. This was a college project, um, ask me about what's my image later, I'll explain, but this was the height of, of my design accomplishments in my life. Uh, so what do we do? And I want to talk about this in, in three acts, kind of the story of the RJ Metrics logo. Um, and the question is, what do you do if style is not in your DNA, right? So there's just like nothing that you have natively. And the answer is you buy it. You spend money uh, on style. And for us, a a broke couple of co-founders, we didn't really have money to buy a professional designer or hire a full-time designer. So instead, we outsourced it. Um, And this is something that a lot of people do. You can go to a number of really awesome services now. 99designs is a really good one. We used uh, Elance. And uh, thanks to the glorious uh, tool Dropbox, I have actually been able to dig up all of the original iterations of the RJ Metrics logo from this very first time around. Uh, When you go to one of these logo design services, uh, very commonly what they will do is, they'll charge you 100 bucks, and for the first round of logos, they'll just drop your company name into a bunch of super generic clip art. So hundreds of other companies have been proposed these logos and rejected them, and now they're being delivered to us. We had some common themes here, you can see subtly like ones and zeros in the backgrounds of all these things, Um, uh, a couple of patterns around uh, charts, and there's like a plus sign and a percentage sign, kind of getting at the metricsy thing. Uh, We kind of liked elements of these, and you can just stare at these and go blind, the number of back and forths that we ended up doing over this logo. And I just want to, let's make this a little interactive here, I'm just going to pluck one of these out. And I would love to get some feedback from the crowd on just one of these on what is wrong with this logo. Uh, this should be a fun exercise. Anybody want to take a stab at just anything at all? There's, like, there's got to be 20 things. I'm going to go for five. Let's find five things wrong with this logo. Uh, hands. Doesn't scale. Doesn't scale. Yeah, scales terribly. Yeah. Yeah, blurry and boring simultaneously. Blurry and boring simultaneously. Two points. <laughs> nice. On principle. On principle. Come on, there's so much. Yeah. Gradients. Gradients. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, the ability to display this in black and white, for example, uh, was extremely challenging. Uh, all right, I'm going for one more. Yeah. Looks like it was made in Microsoft Word, and it very well may have been for what we paid for it. Uh, very good. So there are a, a bunch of problems with this thing. The, the colors are terrible. The, the, even like the letter spacing and the kerning are terrible. There's this weird gradient effect going on. Um, and yeah, it does not scale particularly well. It doesn't really have any unique mark associated with it. Um, it just like doesn't say anything. So uh, what did we do with this particular proposed logo? Uh, obviously, we chose it and made it our logo. <laughs> So this is our original website. Uh, that was my original business card. Uh, so we, we were existing in this software industry called the business intelligence industry that was as old as software for the most part. BI has been around for decades. There are BI products that were built in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and that set the bar for design and user experience particularly low. And we benefited from that. The companies that were the established leaders uh, benefited from this effect, which was when their software got built originally, a very, very small percentage of people actually had computers in the home. So back in in the 80s, you you were lucky if one in six of your employees happened to have a computer at home. So if you came to work and you saw this kind of thing, then that was your expectation of what software was. And that was your sense of how you experience and interact with software products. And if you were lucky enough to go home and have an experience experience where you interact with the computer. Like, this was probably your user experience. Uh, uh, I love this game so much. Um, It was not something that was really uh, comparable to what you were doing in the workplace. But by 2008, our founding year, things were changing and changing in a really big way because there was this trend known as the consumerization of the enterprise that was happening. And what that meant was When people went home from work, all of a sudden, they had consumer products that were software products, uh, typically delivered via the web, that they loved, that had amazing user experience, and that changed their expectations around what software could be. And this was something that was happening in real time in the market as we were going to market. And it was something that we were going to have to overcome because we were not living in a world where we were able to deliver in the way that Mint was for people. We grew, and we started hiring, and this is the point where I would say that our DNA really started evolving. Um, In the meantime, uh, speaking of office space and kind of our identity from a a geographic perspective, this happened, uh, which Camden was already great. Uh, There were some challenges uh, related to the police funding there, Um, and there's this common trope when you are building a business that, uh, hiring engineers is the hardest thing to do. As we heard earlier, there is never an engineering team with enough engineers on it. Um, and we had a lot of trouble getting applicants for our engineering positions. And I, we wanted to be intellectually honest about this, and we said, okay, it's easy to kind of throw Camden under the bus and say, maybe it's due to Camden. And, you know, we, we saw that for our software developer role, we had, you know, a single-digit number of people applying over a multi-month period. but. Everybody has trouble hiring engineers, right? How do we know that if we were in Philadelphia or if we were in some other location, um, then that we could basically do better? Uh, so we decided to answer the question by lying to the general public. We A-B tested our one ads, uh, and we put up an, a nearly identical ad, but just said that we were in Philadelphia. And we got more than seven times as many applicants in a very short period of time. Um, and what we learned really quickly, and this is part of the DNA evolving a bit, is that few job hunters are as risk-seeking as the people who start a company. Uh, And in a lot of ways, frugality, which was such a value for us before, we were growing at a pace where we had more salary dollars that we could pay than people we could get there. And the priorities of the business evolved as a result of that. So we moved to Philly. Um, And the interesting side effect here was that we got an office in Philly that we happened to move into a building where there was this cool hardwood floor and uh, hard ceiling. And uh, it was not your traditional drop ceiling and carpet office environment. Within a month of doing this, my co-founder and I both moved out of our apartments uh, and moved into nicer places. Uh, not because we were making any meaningful amount of money more. We actually downsized our apartments in both cases. It was because all of a sudden we realized that we were spending so much time at the office, not just because we were passionate about what we were doing, but because it was just nicer, because it mattered to us. And the, the extent to which design and aesthetics of what was around us became a priority was very, very clear. Uh, which leads us to Act Two: Hired Guns. Um, So we uh, were growing, we're a Philadelphia company. We got to a point where we were about a dozen or so people but we still had no designer on staff. Uh, But the shortcomings of that logo that you saw before, it only took about two years. Uh, We managed to figure out that it was not the ideal. And we had a bunch of really cool clients at this point in time. One of them was Threadless. Um, If you have ever worn a Threadless T-shirt, awesome. Uh, If you haven't, go check them out and and buy some shirts. They're they're an awesome uh, online retailer. They had their website done by a team in Australia called X-Team. And we hired X Team to redesign our website, which was in desperate need of a rebuild. And we had this afterthought in there. And we said, hey, we're getting the website done. Do you think you guys could throw in a logo? Uh, along with it. And it will come full circle and be evident uh, why this is a bad idea to think of your logo as the afterthought and not the leading thought when it comes to web design. But uh, we had more of a sense of who we were as a business. We had this evolving aesthetic. We had a good sense of who our customers were and what excited them. We were able to speak to all these individual attributes that we wanted. And X-Team delivered a logo that we loved uh, that we used, which is this RJ Metrics uh, swoosh logo. A Little better, consistent font, easy to do black and white, easy to scale, Uh, And it was something that we were able to roll out in, uh, this. I swear this was a cool website in like 2011, and it uh, it doesn't quite hold up with time. But um, anyway, we got into this place where we had all kinds of collateral. And it was at this moment in time where we were building uh, technology that was pushing us forward in a big way. And we got into this situation where uh, we started getting a lot of attention. And part of the attention was we were waving the flag of being a bootstrapped company in a really big way. And we were growing, but the question on the minds of our executive team and of the investors who started calling was, could you be growing faster? And it's at this point in time when we started thinking about what it actually meant to uh, have a capital-efficient business when it comes to uh, a business model like ours. And there's this idea of this thing called the J-curve, which some of you may be familiar with, but this is basically a reflection of the unit economics that we would have with any individual customer over time. So if you look at this curve, when we very first start interacting with a customer, we're we're a company with a free trial, by the way, so uh, there is marketing dollars being spent to bring people in the door. Uh, We had built a a small sales team at that point in time, so when a sale closed, there was some kind of sales compensation that had to happen uh, in order to pay the sales rep. We were hosting these people during the free trial, Uh, Burn, 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 burn on an individual client basis over time until that curve bottoms out there and you actually start getting money back in the door because they are paying you and we're a recurring revenue business. Uh, And over time, as you get paid and you have decent margins on your software, you break back into profitability on that customer and then everything else beyond that is falling to the bottom line. This is a beautiful thing, but the question is, what are the key values uh, on these axes? And there are two that matter in a really big way. One of them is where that curve bottoms out. This is the concept of CAC, or the cost to acquire a customer. Uh, This is the amount of dollars that need to go out the door before you've actually acquired that one incremental customer. And the other is where that line intersects and gets into profitability when it comes to to time. When your recurring revenue has actually accrued enough such that you are able to uh, declare success with that customer relationship. There are a bunch of ratios that people watch uh, from a SaaS standpoint. Uh, ARR over CAC is one of them, and it's basically just a reflection of how long it takes you to get paid back on something like this. And we looked at our data, our data-driven company, and we realized that we were leaving a ton of growth on the table because we were so broke. Uh, We were still at a point here where the recurring revenue was fueling each incremental hire, where every single dollar that was coming in the door was going out to payroll, Uh, usually within a month or so. We were running a pretty, pretty tight ship there. Uh, and we decided that if we had more capital in the door, we could grow significantly faster as a business. And that's what we decided to do. So over the course of about a two and a half year period, we raised just uh, just over $23 million from uh, three different venture capital rounds, uh, which is a decision that as a bootstrap company was one that required a whole lot of thought, but was a reflection of our values changing over time. And our decision to Make the biggest impact we possibly could by growing the business and getting in front of as many customers as possible, um, which leads us to Act three, which is the true evolution of our identity as a business and in a way, frugality had kind of given way to efficiency at this point. We were very well capitalized and you know the the coffee machine had turned into free meals from seamless web, uh, and all of these additional perks that we could offer were suddenly things that made economic sense and this was a, a very much a 180 from where we were as a business just a few years before. Um, We hired a designer, which is probably uh, the most important thing that happened. This guy by the name of Zach Kozak, um, an amazing designer, who pointed out a number of things, uh, not the least of which is that our logo kind of looked like the Microsoft Dynamics logo, Um, (laughs) which is like, uh, uh, no comment. Basically, we, it was time for a change, and we had these things at RJ called hackathons that a lot of companies have. Uh, they're a huge part of our company culture, and they're a point in time where, for 24 hours, all work at the company stops. People can go and work on whatever they would like to work on, and while Zach had been screaming, we need a new visual identity, we need a new visual identity, we had been making a lot of the uh, kind of product management uh, mistakes that we were hearing about uh, in the last talk around deciding to do that next incremental thing with regard to design, rather than uh, making sure that we were making the right strategic decision for the business. In other words, we said no to him. Uh, We were not allowing Zach to go design a new identity, a new logo. So during the hackathon, in a 24-hour period, Zach came back and presented this concept that patterns are what we should really be thinking about when we think about identity. And patterns, they're things that appear everywhere in nature and they're things that appear everywhere inside of of business as well. And he brought up this idea of these platonic solids, uh, a number of three-dimensional shapes that in Plato's time were used to represent different uh, pieces of matter that existed out there in the world. Uh, And these are things like uh, air and wind and fire, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And there was this one Uh, shape, the dodecahedron, the 12-sided three-dimensional object that represented the ether. It represented those things that could not actually be uh, held or felt, but it was the expansive knowledge that existed and the, the awareness of mankind. And that is really what we were striving to do as a business. And he came back and proposed a new logo for us representing RJ Metrics through the dodecahedron mark. Um, And what it would allow us to do is build out a color palette uh, that was much more modern, a much more crisp look, and give us a story that aligned really well with our mission of inspiring and empowering data-driven people and being a part of that ecosystem. Uh, And it had uh, a lot of different ways that it could be presented, and we we said, okay, Zach, we took this hackathon project, and we turned the hackathon project into our new logo, and we rolled it out uh, throughout all kinds of different channels, Uh, one of those channels was uh, Twitter, and we buy a lot of Twitter ads. Uh, They convert really well for us, so one of the side effects of uh, buying a lot of Twitter ads and changing your logo is a ton of people see your logo really, really quickly uh, directly after having made that change. Uh, Which is when, less than a day after having made the change, uh, I started seeing tweets like this one. Uh, Why is your logo a pair of Y-fronts? And uh, I I did not know what Y-fronts was. Uh, We get we got a lot of replies uh, to tweets that I kind of ignore. So this was what, September 3rd, 13. I kind of brushed it off. Uh, September 4th, 13. Just uh, RT Metrics just appeared as a promoted tweet. Their logo looks like Y fronts. Like, what is going on here? A couple days later, hi. Is your logo supposed to look like a pair of Y fronts? Uh, this is the moment at which uh, we're going to play this game, risky click of the day. Uh, <laughs> so. You and I are going to relive this moment that I had sitting at my computer uh, on Google Image Search. I type in Y-fronts, I hit Enter. No! (laughs) Y-fronts are underpants. Uh, These kind of underpants, to be specific. (laughs) Now, tens of thousands of people had seen these tweets, and we got a handful that said, hey, your logo looks like white fronts. Not a big deal. But we noticed a common thread among all the people that were mentioning this, and that was they all came from one particular geographic region. (laughs) Uh, Something about people in the UK led them to identify, they see our logo and they see white fronts. And we, we decided, Uh, We really need to test this. So uh, there's this really awesome tool called Google Consumer Surveys that you can do. It's very inexpensive. And they will inject survey questions right into Google ad boxes all over the globe. You can split it out by geography. Uh, So we ran a Google consumer survey. What does this object look like to you? And just showed the mark from our logo uh, and got the answers back. And lo and behold, uh, about uh, 2.6% of people, that's about 1 in 40, uh, in the UK saw underwear or wide fronts, whereas it was 0.2 in the US and and, in pretty much everywhere else on the globe as well. Um, And it left us in this spot asking, what do we do now? Now, this was something that we had invested a lot of energy in. We had changed our website. We had changed all kinds of the uh, branding. We had ordered new trade show displays. Do we abandon the dodecahedron? Do we hang our heads in shame? And we decided uh, instead to uh, Raise the underpants up on the flagpole and declare victory. Uh, and I wrote this blog post called "Our Logo Looks Like Underpants." <laughs> a case study in internationalization. And this. Uh, this blog post was maybe the most, we do a ton of content marketing, it was hands down the most successful blog post we've ever had. It went to number one on Hacker News, it was on the front page of Reddit. Uh, and it was like really meaningful for, uh, these numbers if to consumer businesses probably don't look that impressive, but if you're running a B2B company, getting 50,000 unique page views over a very, very tight band of time is extremely valuable. And if you think about our sales funnel, um, you can think about that as 50,000 uniques, right? Uh, even at really low quality traffic which believe me this was uh you're still converting those at it call it like Ten basis points, right? 0.1 percent of those turn into actual sales qualified leads, those conversations. And for us, about 20 percent of our SQLs end up turning into paying customers. Our ACV is about 20k a year. That's 10 clients at 20k a year. That's 200,000 dollars of incremental annual recurring revenue. Uh, The market is nuts right now, and if you're growing at more than 100 percent a year, you can command as much as a 15 times run rate valuation multiple. Which means when we went and raised our Series B round shortly after this, there was an additional three million dollars of equity value baked into our business because of the underpants fiasco. And not only that, and I got a call from the New York Times, and they said, hey, love that post. This is exactly the voice we need at the New York Times, uh, which I am still struggling to understand. But there are all these uh, ripple effects uh, that led to a whole lot more visibility uh, for us as well, which is super cool. Um, Oh, we also joined like a a family of, this is apparently a thing. WotC, really good startup there. Uh, And of course, Airbnb, which famously... uh, I wanted to keep it PG-13. There's a great, uh, there's a Tumblr about the Airbnb logo that adds additional uh, accessories to it uh, that you should all check out later. (laughs) Uh, Okay, So anyway, uh, there was this evolution that happened. And we found, by the way, by running another Google consumer survey, that by slightly changing the orientation of the dodecahedron uh, and doing the 2D projection in that way, no one saw underpants anymore. It eventually evolved into into what you see there. Uh, The day was saved, et cetera, and we were able to get some benefits out of it. One side effect, though, uh, one side lesson here that I just want to mention is hackathons are for hacking. And I think one of the big mistakes that we made was we relentlessly in the history of our business undervalued and underprioritized design and specifically the the design of our logo in a really big way from spending absolute bottom dollar on it for the original rendition from uh having it be an afterthought when the logo got designed by our outsourced uh, web design team to basically having our new designer who had this amazing idea be forced to do all of the work related to the logo in a 24-hour period during a hackathon. Um, This is fail after fail after fail. Uh, The good news is that we got somewhere because over time, we evolved and we prioritized the right thing. And the epilogue here is all about this idea of having a lot of pride in what we've ended up building. And if you look at the evolution of the logo over time, you can see the evolution of a business as well. Um, And what I would say is that identity, to me, ultimately boils down to being an output of culture. Company culture is something that gets mentioned in a lot of uh, situations, and a lot of businesses kind of use it as a throwaway word for anything related to the people at your business or uh, the way that uh, your 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 uh, uh, employees stay loyal. I think about identity as being something that should uh, be an output and not an input to culture. And what I mean by that is that in the early days, if we had spent all of our money on a great designer to build an amazing logo, I actually think that would have been a mistake as well. Because at the point in time, it was reflective of what we were as a business. Inputs to culture are things like how people treat each other and what your core values as a business are. The outputs to culture are things like perks and the way your identity evolves. Uh, There are no shortage of companies that decide that they have a morale problem and they buy a ping pong table or a foosball table or an arcade game and they stick it in the corner and they, they say, this is what's going to save culture. The businesses that have healthy culture never had those things to begin with until it got to the point where their team members wanted to be competitive with each other in an office environment and demanded it. Uh, when you have that foosball table that shows up because someone brought it in from their basement and not because you decided to buy it because uh, it would make people more likely to stay late and work harder, that's the moment at which these outputs really start to match manifest themselves. Uh, I showed a slide earlier with all the perks that we offer these days. Uber emerged because people were working super late, uh, and a lot of people walk home to, to neighborhoods that are not that great after dark, and it was something that the business required. Same thing with seamless web and food delivery. Uh, there's a, a maker bot in our printing room which has nothing to do with our business and is not a justifiable business expense. Someone who won a hackathon took their hackathon winnings and bought it and just brought it into the office. Uh, and that's the kind of output-driven perk uh, that we really have chosen to center our business around when it comes to building culture. Uh, and it's been really important